market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special and very, very unusual Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, Dr. Yvonne Mahati. G'day, Doc. G'day, Captain. Mate, I, I say that only for the enjoyment of our current listeners and for those who do listen or don't listen regularly, this is your first episode. We do this every Sunday, but we still call it a special Sunday mailbag edition because once upon a time it was a bonus one and then we got so many great questions, we just kind of kept doing it, didn't we, mate? We did. All right. Let's get straight into it from the very beginning and we have some questions for Lee. Now, at least it's hi, Doc, and a question for the podcast. I currently hold Redbubble and I sold half as it became the biggest holding in my portfolio. I bought at 55 cents and I sold at $2.60. I'm not sure that's a, that might be a humble brag. I think. I'm not sure there's actually a question coming from that, but uh, <laughs> there are some questions that Lee then subsequently asked. So let's go to those. Uh, Lee says, what sort of small cap stocks does Doc look at? Is it just tech and biotech stocks? So let's start there, mate. When you, you're looking for, so let me, let me editorialize and you can then tell me where I'm wrong. You should be looking for big winners. Hopefully, the stocks will go up tenfold or more in value if you can find them. And by definition, that means expecting to buy Woolies or Commonwealth Bank or BHP with that sort of return, they might go up tenfold eventually, but you and I might be dead by then. You're looking for the ones that have simply more explosive growth potential because they are small, because they're doing something new and different. And as they get to or towards maturity, they're just massive, massive growth. Is that, is that a fair kind of assumption of what Extreme Opportunities does, your service? Yeah, that, that's about right. I mean, we basically are looking at smaller companies that are fast growing. And is it only tech and biotech, mate, or are you looking outside no, that so, place? Uh, so there's no mandate that says that, you know, you only have to find tech or biotech. Right. Um, so we're agnostic in that sense. But a lot of our, our recommendations are, actually biotech is a small component. It's Most of it is tech, really. Okay. That, for, for obvious reasons, you know, tech is a good place to hunt for large multi-baggers. Tech mm-hmm. ten, typically tends to be companies that um, have a lot of operating leverage, which basically means, you know, once you've got sort of a fixed cost base on yeah, which right. you can create scale and the cost base does not grow as your sales grow as much, right, at right, least. Right. So it's a, it's a nice hunting ground, which is why uh, we have a lot of tech. Um, so it's not 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 a mandate, but yeah, like when we look at biotechs, we take a swing at biotechs every now and then. I call it swing large because again, there's a there's a good probability of failure with biotechs mm. as well. But you know, if a biotech is also successful, and you know, a couple of drugs come out, they're successful. You know, they make you know multi billion dollars of sales a year, then those things can be really big deals. Yeah. Um, so we try to be strategic with our biotech plays. Like, you know, when we have, you know, some insight we believe that is interesting and the market is missing or we think that, we, you know, we have been able to uh, square off the the probability of success mm-hmm. reasonably. Uh, again, they tend to have a biotech. There's a tech angle to it. Um, <laughs> I'll also disclose that yeah. thus far our biotechs <laughs> have not really worked out. Okay. Um, uh, you know, I think we've had one biotech which we've sort of sold and we've got two current biotechs on the scorecard both lagging. So take that for whatever it <laughs> right, means. Right, right. Um, yeah, so... Let's unpack that a little bit, mate, because I, I, I want to get just delve a little bit deeper into the tech thing and, and you mentioned a couple of reasons why tech tends to be a fertile hunting ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned... The first thing you mentioned is the ability to scale. Now, as we think, just for our listeners, as we think about scale, it's a really important question, right? If Woolies wants to do more sales, yeah, you can get a few more people from the surrounding area into your store. You can grab some from Coles. You grab some from Aldi. You might, I don't know, grab some from the next suburb across because you've got a brand new shiny store with bigger range or something. 
But if you're in Melbourne, you're not going to get Sydney shoppers. Well, Melbourne's probably a bad example right now. If you're in Burke, you're not going to get Sydney shoppers to travel to your supermarket in, in, in Burke, right? You're going to have to have one in Sydney to get Sydney customers. If you're selling software online or you're, you're an e-commerce company or you're doing something like that, you A, you're not location dependent and B, you've got a bigger available audience because if you can access the internet, if you've got a, if you've got a 4G hotspot or a, or a Wi-Fi connection or an MBN, you can pretty much buy from anyone anywhere on the internet. And so to some degree... Is that part of the scale story? You, simply, the, once you've proven your case, if you hear from your mate in Burke, hey, you should shop at Woolies next time you're here. You're like, okay, fair enough. If your mate in Burke says to you, mate, you've got to jump online and shop at this shop, or if you're looking for a new you know, human resource management software solution, here's a great one I'm using. Those things just are more, not even portable, just more accessible. Uh, the geographic boundaries don't apply to the same degree. Yeah, so for software companies, the world is sort of their oyster. Um, if you're making tables and chairs and things like that, I mean, you have mm. to put more factories or you know buy more wood. Right, right. It's just that you know, software. You write the software piece once. I mean, this is like highly abstract, but you know, you write the software code once, and the same software code can potentially help all the nine, eight billion people, right? Whatever seven billion people that we have on the planet, right? <laughs> so. <laughs> so I think that's, that's sort of the idea. The yeah, scale yeah. is possible. Yeah. Most of the companies, if you look at us, are, are tend to be small. A uh, little bit, of, I'd say, you know, they are tend to operate in either niche areas or yep. they tend to operate in sort of new and emerging areas. Um, right. But you know, again, that's it's not. So when I say tech, there's, there, there there'll be companies that we look at which are a combination of sometimes hardware and software as well, right? Yeah, okay. So it's not necessarily just. Um, okay. pure software. So it's not like, you know, it's like a, extreme opportunity is not like a software newsletter by itself. But <laughs> there, is a, there, is a, there is a software focus. Right. Uh, but yeah, it looks at, you know, software enabled things that might be hardware components to it as well. Okay. Now the other thing about that is that not only is it geographically unrestricted, but the growth of such a business also doesn't require additional capital. So none of these Woolies have to open a store in Sydney if your mate in Burke likes it. So that's got it's got to geographically move. But to open that store, not only is it geographically difficult, you've also then got to add a whole lot of capital. You've got to rent the store, buy the shelving, buy the stock, put the lights on, hire the staff before you make your first sale. And if you're lucky, you get to scale. And if you're lucky, or again, that scale turns into profit. If you want to sell again, it's it's a combination. It's, it's a version of the geographic spread, but it also means. Once you've built the software once, if you're, and again, whichever example you want to use, mate, but if you've built a piece of software, now the hardware companies are slightly different, as you say, but the software-only businesses, once you've built that software once, you're only going to keep developing it, but there's not a lot of extra need. If you go from one to two to five to 15 to 150 customers, the cost of providing that software is almost zero for the incremental customer, right? That is right. Yeah, so the, yeah, so the, you can you could do work with a lot less capital. There's still sales and marketing costs. Yeah, you yeah. know, to grow your business. Right. Uh, a lot of cost on R and D um, to you know keep up your software, yeah. build new features. And that is the cost to some degree that, that other businesses don't carry. If you're a retailer, it's not a lot of R and D required, right? Exactly. Yeah. And any R and D you do is probably on the shop floor. When someone says, "Hey, have you got that new tea from Lipton?" You go, "No, but I'll get that in." That that's pretty cheap R and D, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Versus someone who you know selling selling someone else's product isn't exactly the most innovative area compared to someone who has a new module of their yeah. cloud accounting software where they say, have you guys got that payroll module? Oh, no, we haven't got one. Okay, I'll go to your competitor. Or yeah. more importantly, you want to get there first so you can say, hey, come to me instead. There is something of an arms race, but it's it's, modif- it's it's kind of you know mitigated by the fact that the arms race is there, the cost is there, 
but you can simply spread that cost over a stupidly large number of potential customers. That is right, yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah. So, that's why you point out the R&D, the sales and marketing. I mean, I mean typically, you know, Woolies sales and marketing would be different from sales and marketing of a software <laughs> yes, company, right? I mean, Woolies typically doesn't need to have right, that sales right, and marketing right. because, well, I mean, yeah, it's doing some sales and marketing, yes, yeah. doing some promotions and things like that, but it doesn't really have to have an army of salespeople trying to right, right, sell right. things, right? Yes, yeah. The, the, yeah. So, that's, those are, so, but this is like, you know, growth businesses where um, you yeah. can expect mm-hmm. that the market is also growing and sort of the TAM is growing. So when I say TAM, like the total addressable market is growing. Right. Like the total addressable market for Woolies is well understood, well known and not growing at a very high. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right, right. Which, is, which is great. Like this, I mean, you know, Woolies is, Woolies is the after for your before, for your before companies, right? Like yes. If you, if you didn't, and Woolies, I mean, it doesn't have the same attributes, but to some degree, when Woolies opened its first store under the town hall in Sydney, if someone had said, this will be a thousand store conglomerate which has got 40% of the market in all these categories you kind of go well great I can see the growth potential for that business the total addressable market is 25 million Australians in 2020 but right now it's one store with in 1910 with 100,000 people in Sydney yeah it's the total addressable market over time was massive and it had to do a lot to get there including costs and a couple of bankruptcies on the way or at least one Um, (laughs) but you know so the TAM in that was actually big The, the problem right for Woolies is they pretty much max that out. There are, there are not many people who can't order or buy from a Woolies store around the country now. There's not much left. The TAM is, TAM is large, but it's completely saturated. That's right. Yeah. So, like, I mean, in an ideal world, you'd, you'd get in at that one store level, hold until it gets to, like, 1,000 stores, uh, the or the analogy equivalent. Right, right. And, and, you know, so you'd see the company go from, like, you know, early stage growth to, you know, mid-cap growth to becoming a large club steady, right. uh, you know, blue chip that would be sort of like the ideal, you know, you get your 10x or even more in that in that scenario, right? Yeah. Um, if, if, again... Well, Woolies, I think, it's 20x since it listed at two bucks and now the shares must be 30-something. I mean, it's up 15-fold since listing. It's You don't have to just buy the complete bleeding-edge companies. That yeah. being said, if you can find one that's at that level, it's even better. Yeah, it's a... Yeah. But I mean, you know, but a lot of things have to be... You know, you have to avoid the bankruptcies that you're talking about as well. Yeah, right, so, right. Exactly, so, yeah. So, yeah, like, but that's sort of the game we play. There was, and the, was there a question on Redbox? As well, or are we- no, so Red Bubble was just was in passing actually, <laughs> oh. just a, a reference on the on the way past. So oh, okay. the second the second question though was, do you rebalance to safer mid and large cap stocks or ETFs regularly? So I think the assumption from Lee here is you made some money in your small caps, are you then kind of going, well that was great, I can now turn that into some safer mm. mid and large cap investments, or do you stick in the small cap end of the market? So uh, there are many answers to this one, um, and I say there are many answers to this one because what I do uh, may not be applicable to what you know Leah is doing, right? right, so, right. I mean that's that's number one point to remember. Um, in, in, so I, I'll paint some uh, observations nice. or some, and, and I'm sure you'd have different ideas as well. So one of the so number one thing to realize is whether or not you're adding capital over time or mm. you've got a fixed pool of capital that you're working with. Mm-hmm. And, and and in both scenarios, I think my ma- my personal management strategy changes. Um, if I'm adding capital over time, what I tend to do is I look at effectively, like so I'm telling my, myself, my personal portfolio, I would look at you know roughly my portfolio and I'll think of you know positions and percentages. If I have to start a position, I want to start relatively small, a mm. couple of percentage points. And if, if I'm looking to get get into a high growth, you know, high flyer sort of thing, you know, if it's if it's like a risky high flyer, maybe one percent. If it is, you know, relatively less risky, maybe a couple of percentage points. Mm. And then I don't do anything to it. 
Okay. In the sense that I let it do its thing. Okay. And, you know, if the results are really good and I really like the execution, then I'll add to it. Right. And if the results are not that great. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. Yeah. <laughs> what next? I would, my rule of thumb at least is that I'm going to let it do its thing for a couple of years at okay. least. Okay. Right. So for a couple of years, and that might sometimes mean on those couple of years, um, you know, the the stock might actually go down if it's really lousy and the right, company's right, right. really lousy. I mean, I would have lost most of my funds and that's okay. Yeah. Um, because, you know, things tend to be bumpy. There's no, like, you know, things are never really going to go up in a mm-hmm. straight line. Fair. So I would not add unless I have confidence. Right. I would be happy to add at a higher price if necessary. Okay. Um, Sometimes I just don't do anything and let it do its thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Right, and if it becomes a bigger portion, because in this particular example, for example, he's got like you know something be- goes from like you know fifty one dollar to mm-hmm. like say five dollars, yep. right? So that's like a five bagger. The allocation automatically has increased. Got to be tempting to rebalance at that point for some people, right? You made five times yeah. your money. Man, I want to lock that in. I want to go and put money somewhere safe. I've I've, I've kind of had I've, I've rolled the dice. I've I've made a win. I've you know all that kind of stuff. You, you resist the temptation to sell at five bucks. Yeah, so, so the, the, the qualified answer is I actually tend to not sell anything that is doing well. So like, as, as, a, as a rule of thumb, I wouldn't, I'm generally not selling. Yeah. And even if the thing is actually, like here, here's the thing, even if the, biz, even if the business's share price is not going up, that, yeah. because the, here's, the thing is that share prices, they have periods. They have got this. They really do. Yeah, like sometimes they're just, you know, they'll be in this phase of grow, going up. Yep. And then there'll be like a, you know, the, the horrible word called consolidation is happening <laughs> in a chartist, you know, that's a chart, oh. chartist word of consolidation. And then you know, nothing might happen for a couple of years. Yep. And that's okay. As long as the business is doing, I think it what it should be doing. Yeah. Sometimes the share price goes ahead of time. But I, I don't, just don't try to, I'm not a very valuation centric guy. So I don't try mm-hmm. to say, you know, oh, this should be a $6 stock and now it's six fifty. Therefore I should sell. I don't do that because, you know, yeah. it, it could be $6 or my calculation could be wrong and it's maybe worth $8, right? And I, I, I just try to not get into that nitty-gritty detail and I just sense. let it do its thing. And But if a position has become too big, what I tend to do though is I do not tend to add to it. Okay, right. So I let, I let the business, you know, the portfolio do its thing. Right, right, right. But I've got new capital. That new capital is going to go to either a smaller position oh, yeah, okay. that exists yeah, yeah. or something new. Yeah, right. Right. So, so I'm never, correct, if, you, if you're adding regularly to a portfolio, that's kind of a way of putting some degree of balance back in. Yeah. Partly, by, partly deliberately, partly just by actually the result of simply finding a better idea. You're not actively even saying I'm avoiding that stock. You're saying, well, it's already big. I'll go and put money in my, my most attractive ideas. And if they're a different company than the big one, by definition, that becomes a smaller percentage over time. Yeah, like uh, with, with the caveat, like, typically once a position has become like 6 7%, yep. even if it's my best idea, like the right, best okay, idea, I actually don't add to it. Okay. That's, it's just a way of diversifying because, uh, you know, like if I have a portfolio of 30 stocks, yeah, I really smart. like all those 30 stocks, then right. I mean, you know, I can add to something else. Right, so that's right. what I do. It's just a way of balancing things out. It evens things out a bit. It's almost like doing an equal weight ETF. Like yeah, it makes that's sense. really what what it is, uh, but it tends to again then disbalance over time. Nice. Um, in, if I had a fixed amount of capital, I'll yep. answer that very quickly. Yeah, okay. Then, I in in that case, I mm-hmm. would trim positions, okay. uh, largely because I have no natural way of taking mm. that uh, weight away. Right, by, right, right. So then you know 
then if if a position becomes like 15 16% then I would, I, would, I would definitely trim a bit um you know largely because you know I just want to reduce the single company risk even however great that company is there's always single company risk that could, mm-hmm. something could happen you know you could have a fraud you could have like you know again nobody knows when the fraud shows up because you know or you know the founder might die and the company mm-hmm. might all of a sudden lose its value stuff happens yeah, and right, for that reason just try to have an upper limit there in which case i would be trimming interesting Matt. that makes sense i like it um i i, I have a similar approach to you actually so we, we invest in different companies from time to time mostly different companies actually uh, but our, our approach to actually portfolio is kind of the same so i very rarely sell i hate selling um for a couple of reasons one is that if i've done the work and, and done well picking the stock uh, they, they probably deserve some more rope generally speaking so you know, the people say, oh, it's already up. It's started to come down. Should I sell now or whatever? Uh, my best investments have been ones where I've simply let them do their thing and let them have their head. Um, my, I've used this before. I'll give myself a bit of a, a, bit of a kick in the backside. Um, my, my worst investment decision ever was not a stock I bought. It wasn't a stock I recommended to our members. It was selling a stock that subsequently went up a lot. Domino's went from 6 to 13. I thought I was a genius. Sold out for a double. How good am I? You can't go broke taking a profit, right? That 13 bucks then went to 70. <laughs> so I literally missed out on what would have been very, very close to a 10-bagger because I took a double. Um, because I th- you know, and, and there were some reasons why there was some doubt. It wasn't just the price. I wasn't doing that. I've, I'm, I know more than that these days. But what I did do was I looked at the slowing same-store sales growth and went, oh, it's slowing a bit and how long can this really keep going? And the price is up a lot and oh, maybe there's some risk. Maybe I'll take the money off the table. Well, it cost me and it cost our members a lot of money. So I want to I want to call it out. Uh, you know, give myself a bit of a, a, a whack for that one. But you know, that's the problem. Right? If you find a good business, letting them do their thing, even if there's a short term, as you say, Matt, whether it's share price or even operational concern, generally speaking, just letting it, just make sure it's playing out. And yes, Domino's could go back to six dollars in a worst case scenario, or maybe you know, worst case obviously zero. But you know what I mean. Um, in, in some, but if I'd done that, I would have lost a, I would lost my double back to a single, and that would have kind of sucked. But again, the, the, the gain I missed, the sort of seven, eight-fold gain I missed would have paid for another seven or eight complete disasters um, just by letting quality businesses do their thing. So I sell it very slowly as do you. In terms of rebalancing or in terms of kind of portfolio management, I'm the same. I, I very, I, I don't think, you know, I don't have ever sold for, for portfolio sizing reasons, ever, I don't think. Um, now again, like you, I'm adding money regularly. So I have part of a solution for that is just simply I've been able to add money, which has helped to, to do that rebalancing. Um, I'm super comfortable with large positions that are volatile. Um, I, I will say outright, corporate travel management was my largest position. is no longer my largest position because the share price fell by you know, 70%, 60%. Um, that hurt financially. It hurt emotionally. Um, but overall... I did much better doing that than actually trimming other stuff as I've gone. So, you know, there's there's horses for course. And for most people, they should be trimming. As you said, they should be holding single digit probably percentages as their largest positions. Um, I'm just a different sort of investor. I've got a very, very high tolerance for volatility. But uh, for most people, I think it makes sense. Rebalancing that for the sake of it, that's a tough one. And I certainly wouldn't, I wouldn't reinvest outside my investment style, I have to say. Now, you make your own call for you, Doc. But if someone like is is following your advice and, and buying a diversified group of small caps to try and maximize their returns, Taking money off the table from a successful strategy to go into a middle large cap ETF would be fine. You'll do okay. Um, but the strategy that got you there is probably one worth continuing unless you think the strategy no longer is relevant or no longer works. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I was going to actually say, I was going to, uh, while you were talking, I was thinking about something. You know, people say um, selling is hard. And that, that's yes. actually true because making good sell decisions is, oh, is difficult. So but, you know, if you think about, if you grade what is hard in investing, I think buying is hard. Yes. 
selling is harder. Yes. <laughs> the hardest thing is actually holding on. Yeah. Right? That's right. Because, because I think that's right, actually. That, that's actually yeah, yeah. the yeah. hardest thing yeah, yeah. Uh, is just holding on to the stuff. The illusion of activity makes us feel so much more in control and in a way that we're doing something, we're making a decision, we're making, taking an action. Watching and having that kind of play on your mind over days, weeks, months, years is tough. Yeah, it's just, or it's just the fact that you know, the, mm. like if you have a position, like you know, let's let's say use Amazon as an example. Suppose you mm. bought Amazon shares at like you know, hundred bucks. Yeah. Now they're like three thousand bucks. Yeah. So that's a thirty x right? Right. right. And then if you had put any like you know half decent amount on it, like even if like a couple of thousand bucks, yeah, well, yeah. that's a lot of money. Yeah, that's right. Now, yeah, the mind will basically say, well, what if yeah. all this gain yeah. Yeah. got cut by 20%, 30%, and that Absolutely. really makes holding hard, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you could have asked the same question when it was 2,000. You could have asked the same question correct. when it was 1,000. Correct, correct. Right? And, and that's why I think holding, holding is really, I think the most successful investors are the ones that actually learn how to hold. Yeah. And this is like, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm perfect. It's just, it's just really tough. It's hard. It's a really tough yeah, journey. Yeah, it's hard. And you can always find an excuse to make yourself look smart <laughs> that I sold right. because of this, this reason. And then you can always say that I have a thesis so and true. I sold because of my thesis yep, and therefore yep. it's okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's just, <laughs> so true. You know, it's just, yeah, this selling is, is hard, but I mean, you yep. know, holding on is just, just really, really difficult. It is. Um, the next question from Lee was, once a small cap pays off, do you take some profit and reinvest in other small caps? We've answered that, I think, Lee. Generally, no, unless there are specific portfolio concerns. And Lee says, podcast is an easy listen. We might get Doc on TikTok if Microsoft purchase it. What do you reckon, mate? Is, that, is, that, is the door open slightly? Well, here's the thing, though. Uh, there's a little bit of a technicality to it. Right? The technicality is that Microsoft is buying, if, there's a big if, TikTok America. Now, the question is, if I sign up to TikTok, am I signing up to TikTok Australia or TikTok America? Because as far oh, as I, I know, see. TikTok Australia is not owned by Microsoft. All right. So my, if Microsoft gets TikTok America, maybe, Apple can, buy, with it. maybe Apple can buy TikTok Australia. I, you know, I can't. I can't for the life of me work out how a network can actually be split, a global network can be split by country. I'm not sure. I don't know how that works. I mean, a network is by definition a global network. I don't even know how it's possible for that to be. To work the way it works. I am not sure. You'd have to ask, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Satya how that is going to work. I mean, I get that if you're in America and there's 300 million people, you probably don't need too many international yeah, bits of exposure. But in a globalized world, I don't know anyone who signs up with a network knowing for sure it's never going to be bigger than the country you're in. It's a so you're just basically saying, I'm going to have no American fans if I open a TikTok account. Maybe they'll sign up with TikTok Australia because so they want to get, you know, follow you. Oh, What's your first TikTok video, Doc B? What do you reckon? I'll do a sell buy sell hold dance. <laughs> <laughs> is there a different dance for each each buy sell hold? I, I don't know. I have to. Okay. It's, it's just it's really you know it's you, hard hard stuff. <laughs> I'm going to consult with my daughter. <laughs> you heard uh, it first, fools. Doc is going to join TikTok and do a buy hold sell dance. Yeah, we'll hold him to it. <laughs> if you want to see that, hashtag Doc's TikTok buy hold sell dance. It's a long hashtag. And I was going to use it so I could do it anyway. There you go. Hashtag Doc's buy, hold, sell, TikTok dance is the new hashtag if you want to see Doc on TikTok doing a, a special. Do they only dance on TikTok to do anything else or is it all dancing? 
Well, as far as I know, I'm, I've only seen videos which my daughter has shown me. Okay. I've actually gotten her off TikTok now. Have you? Uh, yeah. Mm. Uh, but uh, she also read the report that Microsoft is buying. And she goes, can I go back in? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> reason I got, the reason I got you back out of it was not because it was owned by XYZ. It was because I just think that too much social media is not good for you. <laughs> but no, reports like, uh, like this. And, uh, I don't know. I think you're going to sign her straight up for it if Apple buys TikTok. She'll be there with a heart. You'll be there in a heartbeat. You know, the whole family will be there. You see, everything with Apple is fine. <laughs> Apple is a good company. It thinks about its customers uh, and the well-being. So, so that's, that's different. Love it, love it. All right, <laughs> let's move on. Great questions, Lee. Thank you for that conversation. I really enjoyed that chat, Doc. Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m. Uh, Rob says, hi, mate. I'm signed up to Motley. I'm a first-time investor. I'm just battling with all the suggestions. He says, would you still suggest the five starter stocks right now? I really like NASDAQ ETF. Solpat seems solid. Treasury seems like it could take off one day. And others I'm not so sure about. Is now the right time to jump in? I've gone on Kogan as my first stock. So many different views and advice I've, just, I've been given leaves me unsure. Just want to make smart decisions and set myself up for a comfortable life for my family. Obviously, you get inundated, but thought I'd try my luck. Cheers, mate, from Rob. Now, I like that question, Doc, for a couple of reasons. I included, there's a couple of stocks there that are free. There you go. There's some free share advisor recommendations because three of those stocks you mentioned are the starter stocks at Motley Fool Share Advisor. I'm not going to give you the other two. You can sign up to that one. I'll give you tell you how in a minute. But uh, interesting question from Rob. Rob. Rob is suffering from an absolute you know, <laughs> avalanche of potentially good ideas. He's hearing ideas from us, from his mates, um, so many different views and advice, he says. leaves me unsure. And I completely get that, right? The world is your oyster, which is great. Sometimes though, when your world is your oyster, you're like, what do I do? The, the paradox of choice, the psychologists call it. You know, you got to choose between two or three things, you're okay. When someone gives you 100 options, very quickly you look at like, oh, no, it's just too hard. I can't, I can't do that. And I really get that from Rob, Doc. Uh, I'm going to ask answer first, mate, because he's asking about Share Advisor particularly, and then I'll, I'll give you ask for your thoughts just generally about those stocks if you want, but just generally how to get started. So first thing we would say, we say right across the Motley Fool, we want you to get to 15 stocks as quickly as you possibly can. There's nothing overly magic about 15. What it does do, though, for most people is it allows you to get to a point where no single stock impacts your portfolio value unduly. So if you own two stocks and one goes badly, you, you, you're going to feel pretty crappy about it. And this is its partly financial. It's actually mostly emotional. We're trying to help you manage your emotions by limiting the impact on a particular stock. So there's that. Second thing is that Share Advisor, we have a starter stock list. Now, those are the five companies that we think every Share Advisor member should own as bedrock positions in their portfolio. Companies that meet the criteria that we have, companies that are exemplify the way we invest and frankly give you a really good starting point. You know, again, 15 stocks, man, where do I start with 15? We'd say firstly start with these five. Now, they're not necessarily the hyper growth stocks. They're not necessarily the ones that are going to go up 100% tomorrow. If we knew those, of course, we tell you to buy those ones. These are the ones that we think are really, really solid, strong, high conviction companies that are worth owning for the long term. And so that's why they make our starter stock list. If you build a portfolio with that as your foundation, we feel really, really good about the start you're getting your portfolio off to. So that's why we do it. And I think, as you say, Rob, lots and lots of options from lots and lots of people. I would say go with us because that's what I do. <laughs> but but whichever you go with, I think it's kind of 
with narrowing down your search, right? There's always going to be a million choices. Like going to a, you know, a buffet restaurant, there's a million things there. How you choose is kind of up to you. There is a lot to choose from. If you're getting lots of advice, different views, again, think about who's giving you those views and advice. We're not perfect. We're not the only people you should listen to. But there are a lot of people out there you really shouldn't listen to, um, whether they are you know, well-meaning but have no background, no track record, whether they are people who maybe have conflicted ideas or are simply people who have recommendations that don't follow your investing style, right? If you're joining The Motley Fool, you're joining us because we're long-term investors and you're going to you know, be patient, add regularly, let time do its thing. Now, if you're also listening to a trader who wants you to buy and sell shares of Commonwealth Bank three times tomorrow, well, that's kind of a tough, you know, it's a tough thing to try and combine those two. So think about the timeframes, think about how confident you are in the person giving you the advice, think about their incentives if it comes to that. Um, you know, what are they being paid to do? How are they making their money? And also just, you know, how reasonable is it? Everyone can throw up some ideas, some names and say, I think you should buy this, I think you should buy that. Our track record at, at The Motley Fool, we are, I, I think we are the gold standard in terms of transparency for our members. Every single recommendation ever that Doc's made or that I've made is on our scorecards forever. I mean, I guess forever is a long time, but you know, literally every single recommendation since the first recommendation of Share Advisor in December 2011 is available for our members on the on the scorecard permanently. That's just where they are, um, and so you know, to some degree, I think we are pretty much gold standard from that perspective, and, and we think that's the right way to go. So look, I get Rob that it's super complex and difficult. Um, I would say get to 15 as quickly as you can. Start with our five is what I would recommend for our members. Again, you don't have to and it's up to people that have different views, but I think it's a really good way to get a very good solid bedrock start and then kind of regularly build from there. The other thing is just get to 15, yeah, but don't also feel like, you know, don't don't succumb to FOMO, right? You don't have to own everything automatically right now. Also, don't, don't give in to keeping up with the Joneses. Envy is a really terrible emotion for investors. Just because something else is going up and you haven't got that yet, um, that's always going to happen, right? There are, I've missed so many winners in my career. So as Doc, we all will by definition miss lots of winners because you can't buy everything and some things don't meet your style. Some things succeed despite not, you know, maybe they shouldn't deserve to. whole lot of reasons why you won't necessarily get every winner. So don't try. Just try and do the right things the right way. That's my thoughts, Doc. Your thoughts on SADA stocks, portfolio construction, hum. wading through the massive list of potential purchases? I think you covered everything. So I really don't want to, you know, take extra time and just cover the same things again. So <laughs> I'm going to just say, yeah, everything is pretty much covered. Do you guys, how, how would you start, if a member was a member of the EO, how would, how would you get them started? Yes, yeah, so we, we we have a thing called uh, conviction listing. Uh-huh. Um, and what that basically does is we tend to, again, we, we try not to do that too frequently, but approximately once every quarter, we um, come up with a list of 10 right. stocks that we think, or 10 companies in our list, mm-hmm. uh, which we think are uh, our highest conviction. Okay. which we have highest conviction in. And the way we think about building a portfolio really is that, um, so we've got a couple um, ETFs, actually NASDAQ okay. 100 ETF, a free tip is one of them. Right. Uh, we say that, you know, include those ETFs as sort of your, you know, base. And then basically you can build, uh, you know, use some of the high conviction ideas. Right, okay. Right, and then over time, you know, we, we, we are giving people, um, one recommendation a month, you know, that's our best idea for that month. Okay. Um, so pick that. We have uh, Best Buys now, which basically looks at existing um, existing scorecard uh, recommendations or existing older recommendations or older right. recommendations that are buys. Right. And we try to, you know, we look we look at that list and say, okay, here are the two additional ones in addition to one that has been recommended um, this month, which we mm. really like. Uh, and so, the, so there's a couple of ideas, but I think yeah, okay. starting with with the couple, e- the two ETFs to sort of form your base, and then you know looking at the high conviction ideas, and then basically you know continuing with our 
um, with with our new recommendations. The the thing the difference might be by definition because our companies are uh, smaller. Mm-hmm. I'd say that you know you would need to have a little bit larger number of companies just yeah, to spread right, your okay. bets. Yep. But, but you know they're not they're not as big as a, as you know you you mentioned like things like you know treasury mm-hmm. for example. You know that's that's a several billion dollars market cap <laughs> if I tell you, maybe closer to maybe six seven maybe yeah, if yeah. I'm, whereas ours would be a couple of hundred billion million dollars right. of market cap are so cash. literally five or ten percent of that size right yeah there'll be yeah. you know the cash balances will be lower yeah. just the absolute cash yeah, balance yeah, yeah. right and which is fine for that business yeah. but again that you know so so it's it's for those reasons you know we expect more volatility and you know expect higher failure mm-hmm. rate when I, when I when I say failure I mean like you know uh, you would say probably that's something like six maybe or maybe even seven of your ideas work out when I say yep. work out to beat the market ours should be more like four or five yeah, that right. are going to work out so I mean just so it's, it's a little bit different that's why I said you know use those two ETFs as a base and then um, you know use our high conviction ideas and then add so that's it's right. a slightly different approach I like that I'm going to editorialize slightly mate because you mentioned the strike rate and this is what I want to really hammer home for our listeners it's something that even some of our members don't get as much as I'd love them to so if you're a member of any of our services please listen up if you're not I still listen up because I think it's a useful conversation you mentioned that strike rate mate and this is what I think a lot of investors get really really badly wrong and, and it's important because either they get it wrong and lose money or they get it wrong and actually miss out on the, the massive gains that are available from compounding a decent amount of money for a very long period of time and that is that Investing is a game of not certainties, not risk avoidance, but probability. And in any probability assessment, all you're doing is saying, can I put a dollar down now and get more than a dollar in the future? And what is the best way I know of to do that? Now, if there was a if there was a fail-safe investment idea, I guarantee you could make any money out of it because it would already be priced accordingly. If everyone knew it was fail-safe, I mean, there's a reason why government bonds are paying less than 1% right now, right? Because everyone's rushing for, for the, the absolute desperation of, of absolute safety, and you're getting paid nothing for it because why Why would the government pay you more for it if they didn't have to? They don't have to, so they're not going to. Now, interest rates are different, a whole, whole lot of complex stuff there. But conceptually, if the, the more certain a future is, the less likely it is for the price to be attractive relative to the future long-term returns. Now, take contrast that with Amazon you mentioned earlier, Doc. It was a, a, a $3 stock, they went to $100, then back to $9, then to $3,000. Now, it, by rights, if we'd have known that Amazon was going to be worth $3,000 in 2020, it should have been selling for probably something like fifteen hundred dollars in twenty ten, right? Because a double in ten years is about the sort of return you'd get for a relatively certain expected outcome. The shares ten years ago were probably a hundred bucks rather than a thousand bucks because no one knew that was the future. So you have to do something different, and you have to take a a, a bet, a gamble, and I, I use that words deliberately, right? People say, "Oh, there's gambling over here and investing over there," and that's true to some degree. We're not. You know, net gambling, the way we describe it, generally has a net negative return. If you invest in, or invest in, if you, if you gamble on the slots or the dogs or um, uh, the casino tables, overall the house wins. There's a net negative expected return. Investing, there's a positive expected return, i.e. the whole share market grows over time, so you should expect to make money investing. So there is definitely a difference between traditional gambling games and investing. But the same kind of probabilities apply, right? We're looking at a whole lot of ideas, and Doc's saying, right, each of these ideas... He's saying, so let's say it's five out of 10 for docs, right? He's effectively saying half the time, I'm going to get my my investments wrong. But each of them individually has a very good chance of being a better than average return. So you're playing that game of saying some, all of them as a group have done very well. The, the scorecard is, is soundly beating the market as we speak. No, past performance is no guarantee. Let me say that for the lawyers. 
But that's the way we invest. We're looking for ideas that we think have really good long-term potential, knowing that we'll get some wrong because there is no certainty in life. And all we have to do is do that. And when I say probability, you say, okay, if I put down a dollar on all these ideas, am I going to have more than a dollar on average but, you know, over the long term? If the answer is yes, then you're doing it the right way. Not will every company do more than that, but will on average I have more money than I started with and hopefully you know, at a, at a greater rate than the market growth. But that's kind of exactly what we're trying to do. So don't fall for the whole everything's got to be right. Otherwise, you won't invest in anything because you can't have any certainty at all. You end up buying bonds at 0.8%, which frankly is not going to do anything for you. Um, and equally, don't don't speculate stupidly and stuff that, you know, everything's a lot of ticket, right? Every, every gold miner, every biotech, docs, we talk about biotechs, every biotech is a potential winner. If they do this thing, then they will make a fortune. Absolutely. But the idea, the job for us is to say, what is the likely chance of success? And how much do I get paid if it succeeds? And when Doc's strike rate is lower than mine, he's saying the chance of success is low, but the amount I get paid when I succeed is so much higher that it's worth taking that approach. Otherwise, of course, you take a 7 out of 10 rather than a 5 out of 10 if you had the choice. If the returns were the same, of course, you'd be more accurate. But if the returns were much higher and you had to trade that off with a couple of you know, a couple of percentage points of lower strike rate, in other words, if you were right less often, but when you were, you made a heap more money, then of course you should do that because the probabilities, the maths works out that that's how you get outsized returns. Is that fair to say, mate? I think so. I didn't mean to be a rant, but it's like it's really, one that really drives me a bit nuts. Even some of my members say, well, you guys should be more, more often. I'm like, well, yeah, we actually, we, well, I could we be? I don't know. But if we were, if we just went with the safe, obvious stuff, if we were right more often, but the average return was lower, I don't mm. think we'd help anybody. That's, no, that's, that's right. what we're trying to do. So it's an important distinction. Now, speaking of uh, our members, Gina sent us a note. And Gina hasn't really got a question, but she's got a comment to make, and I kind of liked it, so we're going with it. Also, a tip for you out there using iTunes. We are, someone tells us that the iTunes thing is working a little bit better now, but we have had some iTunes issues. So just put that on the table. Our, our uh, boffins at Podcast One actually have reached out to Apple and said, hey, can you guys help us? And Apple came back and said, nope. <laughs> we, if, if the users have trouble, access the Apple Podcast technical support. So our first advice is if you're not getting our Sunday mailbag editions, and frankly, if you're not, you're not hearing this, so it's kind of a bit of a, a moot point. But if you are, uh, if you're not getting them, sorry, then um, then jump on Apple technical support, let them know is the first thing they will. They said they'll help you, so that's positive. But Gina says, I can't think of a better way to start my weekend. I run and listen to your podcast. I love the banter. Thank you, Gina. I never miss the Sunday mailbag on iTunes. I simply unsubscribe and resubscribe before I can tie up my laces on Sundays. The podcast is ready for my run. There you go. So that's a win. Thanks to the company, I couldn't run as fast or far or have the insight and success with investing without you both. And that's Gina. Gina, thank you. That's incredibly kind, mate. Really appreciate that feedback. We says far or fast. She's trying to outrun us. She's trying to get away from us. Do you reckon is that why she's running far and fast? Oh, again, very very nice of her to say all those things. <laughs> it is, um, uh, and hopefully we are helping her. Uh, yeah, giving us an incentive to run. Yes, <laughs> run some incentive to run. Um, Maybe she's going to get over and done with. Maybe it's like if I get home before they finish, at least I don't have to listen to the rest of it. Maybe that's that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, very kind, mate. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for listening. Another Rob, mate, a different Rob this time, and a question about international purchases. Now, I'd have a strong view on this one, but I'm hoping you might have some thoughts. Rob says, question for the podcast. I was looking at purchasing a company that's listed on the London Stock Exchange and the Euronext Amsterdam Stock Exchange. As an Australian investor, on which stock exchange should I buy the company? He says, the company is Pershing Square Holdings. He says, also, what are your thoughts and comments about their new SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Company, I think, SPAC listing in the US? I know nothing about Pershing, but unless you know anything about Pershing, we'll leave the SPAC question alone. Would you buy on the London Stock Exchange or the Euronext Stock Exchange or does it not matter? 
Well, it shouldn't matter technically because of the same. It's effectively you're buying a share in the business, and they, you know, there should be effectively the same yep. portions of the same share or pieces of the same company that you're buying. Uh, some shares are listed here. Some shares are listed there. I mean, I would use probably. Uh, that exchange that from which I can buy at a cheaper cost. Yeah, that would be my. Um, I'll point out a couple of things. Um, many exchanges have interesting rules. Like um, I once bought an international uh, stock listed on an international exchange, and they had a rule that you had to buy in bundles of hundred. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Then they also had um, a stamp duty associated with buying oh, it. Right. Right. And then they had a registration fee. So I, said, so I did not know. That makes you three times. <laughs> that, I said, okay, so there's a transaction fee that you pay to the broker, then there's a registration fee, and then you pay like, you know, some stamp duty. So just figure out. <laughs> exchanges have, various exchanges have various rules, uh, various regulations. Yeah. Um, so just just, uh, just be careful with that, mindful. I, I always pick the exchange that is letting me buy let me exchange <laughs> shares with someone <laughs> for the minimal amount of cost as long as they're properly regulated and these do both look like yep. they're likely to be properly regulated. So, Yep, can't disagree with any of that, mate. Um, I agree entirely. A couple of extra thoughts. Um, I'm pretty sure now that you are going to get English language um, information from both those exchanges, but to the extent that if you're an English speaker as your primary language, um, if and when some of the information on the UNX to Amsterdam exchange is not in English, might cause you some trouble. As a pan-European exchange, I'd be very, very surprised, but just have a think about that. Um, so first thing is Doc's point about fees, keep your fees down, choose the cheapest brokerage, all things being equal. Um, second, as I said, make sure that the language that the broker, the, the, sorry, the exchange chooses to use and the companies choose to use when providing reports is a language you understand well. And if it's the same, then again, no problem there. Um, lastly, I would think maybe just a little bit about the uh, volumes on the exchanges and the, what your broker otherwise deals with. They're a truly international broker, no big deal. If you've got a broker that does 99% of its business in one, not the other or whatever, I'd also probably be inclined just for, to get the, make sure you're getting the best price to go through the exchange with the most volume. So think about price, think about language, think about volumes. Overall though, to Doc's point, I think it's pretty much much of much as I've got to say. Um, I wouldn't be too worried about any of them. Um, but I think if, the, if, you, if they, there are differences in any of those particular dimensions, they're the three I'd be looking for. Anything more, mate? No, sir. Now, mate, we got a great question from Tendai. Tendai starts off with, um, look, I'm going to say, we, we, we're, uh, we're always open to flattery, aren't we? I think that's the only thing they're open to is flattery, right? <laughs> <laughs> flattery will get them everywhere. And yeah. Tendai says, hi, Scott and Doc, you two are my favorite podcast celebrities. I like that. I didn't even know we were celebrities. Well, now we are. Well, apparently we are. Listen, well, Tendai's mind. Exactly. Please tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> please tell everyone that's exactly and especially our boss because we'd like to be paid more please but put it on AFR or something like they, I like that yeah, right yeah. to the AFR dear editor yeah you should everyone should listen to Scott and Doc's podcast on Motley Fool Money yeah on podcast one check it out maybe maybe a little link there for those who are watching online yeah. reading online or, or you know or the next time the PM is out making an announcement <laughs> maybe he can he can drop a line for for the celebrities yeah Scott Morrison the chief medical officer and Anita Van Mahati on three lectins <laughs> What do you reckon? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a good idea to me. All right, should we move on? Yeah. <laughs> it's not all about us. Well, it's mostly about us, but yeah. you know. All right, he says, thank you in advance for answering my question. In a, uh, is it, or is it in arrears? Since the podcast is recorded on Thursday and the special mailbag is unleashed on Sunday. The mind boggles. I have a two-part question on how to deal with dud investments. What he calls zero baggers. I like that. Before I discovered The Motley Fool, I bought shares in a particular company, which turned out to be a bad investment. And the company went into administration. Oof. The shares fell by 
and the company was suspended from trading. I eventually discovered The Motley Fool and changed my approach to investing. Since changing my approach, I've seen some pretty solid returns across my portfolio, ranging from 13% to 246% across individual stocks. That's pretty good. We're happy with that. However, when I log into my trading account, I can still see the 86.09% loss from the dud investment on my share portfolio front screen. It also dilutes my portfolio's total return, which I can see at the bottom of my screen. would love to get your thoughts on the following. Now, there's a couple of questions. The first one Tino asks is, how can I measure my returns? He says, although I cannot sell the shares in the dud investment, I have the ability to physically delete the company from my portfolio screen. Is it better to leave the company there to A, measure my returns over time, including the loss, and B, to remind me of my past investment mistakes? I know I can't delete every bad investment, but this was before I discovered The Motley Fool. All right, so that's question one, mate. Uh, what do you reckon? Do we leave it there as a reminder? Do we get rid of it to reflect the new world? How do you think about the data investment return? Well, well, okay. So number one, um, since the the index, well, since it's not trading, you really can't really sell the shares. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I yeah. mean, basically, that's that's like a hundred percent loss. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I would actually keep it there. Oh, okay. The reason I'd keep it there is to remind myself <laughs> of mistakes. It's really a good thing to remind ourselves of mistakes. It is. Um, and I think if you look at your successes relative to your mistakes, I yep. think it makes them shine brighter. Um, oh, that's a good point. Okay. So I like it. So I, for both reasons, I can remind you of the mistake, but also make the session look even better. Yeah, I, I'll cool. keep okay. it. You know, and then of course, if it's bothering you a lot, then maybe you can just delete it. Um, but yeah, I'd be inclined to keep it largely because it's an artifact here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in most cases, you'd have sold it and it would right, not exist. Right, right. So if you want to, if you want to re- live in the real world. Uh, by all means, delete it. But if you if you want to take some inspiration and remember those days, and then remember how good these days <laughs> I like are, um, I like just keep it. Just keep it. Okay. Uh, I actually agree with that, mate. I, I would keep it for a couple of reasons. I think it's actually there's actually value in being intellectually honest with yourself anyway. Um, if you start to if you start to kind of you know change your numbers to make yourself look better or feel better or something, um, I mean it might help for that, but I don't know that's necessarily a great thing for investing. One of the great things that investors can do is actually have some early losses because it reminds you to be humble and reminds you of some mistakes you've made and you learn from those things. So I would probably be inclined to to leave it alone. Um, uh, that's just me. I, I think yeah, it's probably worth including. All right. Second question was tax considerations, Doc. Since I can't sell the shares to Niasks in the Dud Company. How do I include the 86.09% loss Sorry, in my tax return? You can't. That's the bad news. Is that is that true? Yeah, until the I, company's actually sold, you can't bring that loss forward, unfortunately. It's so, so what, this is, well, this is, this was, you know, I don't know, I, I actually did not know the answer to this. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's a question for the accountant, but what if a company yeah. is insolvent? I mean, yeah. that is basically a yeah. guarantee. Unfortunately, it's not a, a crystallized outcome though. So there is some, so for example, in administration, there is a chance that some of the asset value is recovered by the administrators and then paid back to shareholders. It's a remarkably unlikely tender, I'm sorry to say, but while it's possible, like with gains and losses, same with gains, right? If you had 100% gain and you thought, well, it's just not going to go down, do I declare the capital gain? No, you don't. Only when the loss or the gain is crystallized by sale, unfortunately. So so in this case, yes. if the company eventually, like, I mean, at yes. some point, the administrators are going to leave, right? Yes. So yeah, if the company if the company is formally wound up, then you can crystallize your 100% loss. And what if the company is delisted? Delisted is still an asset that's owned. So you can have a delisted public company. So delisting itself isn't a, a, a point in time which you can claim a loss. It needs to be either 
bought out by somebody or wound up by the administrators and a final decision made, this company is now dead, your shares are worthless, that specific formal advice is the only point in time at which you can do it. You have delisted, because Woolworths could in theory delist itself and remain an unlisted public company for years if it chose to. So the listing itself isn't a capital gains tax or loss event. It needs to be a disposal or the, the cessation of the company itself, a formal cessation, and administration is not that. It needs to actually be wound up and the proceeds paid back to whoever and formal advice from the liquidators that the business is effectively dead. I have a solution for all this. What's that? The ASX should mandate yes. that a company can never suspend itself from trading, and even if it is in voluntary administration, can still trade at $0, <laughs> right? And then effectively- buy the $0 shares though? ASX. Well, the ASX basically buys it for $0. <laughs> so that way, now, the poor investor can actually lock in the loss. Ah, so, but for that purpose, the ASX would have to charge a fee and you'd have to pay more for brokerage. That's okay. No, you don't like, like that. Like, I mean, if you, like, you, you, you pay a $1 fee. Yes. And then you get, suppose, like, I mean, this would really hurt. Suppose if I had, like, you know, $5,000 invested uh, yeah, totally. and then uh, it has turned into zero, yeah, yeah. I would rather take that, I'd rather pay ASX. So yes, ASX yes. makes money <laughs> by getting, even by charging a dollar, and, and, the, and the investor is better off. Here's an ASX, this is an idea for you. Uh, you know, buy all the $0 <laughs> stocks and you know, charge $1 or $2 or whatever. You just think about how much they can make, and um, it's great for investors too. I mean, because, they, I mean, in theory, this is like, if it is zero, yeah. You should be able to offset it because that's yeah, the law, yeah, yeah. Uh, or that's what they. As I said, the, the problem the problem with the company administration is that it, it could literally there are, there are circumstances where you get some proceeds from an administ- company administration. There'll be fifteen dollars left at the end of the day, and everyone gets a cent each, and that cent, as much as nothing, is something. And so, if you've declared one hundred percent loss, you then got a problem. So, the, the the law requires a formal sale or the company will physically be insolvent before you can do it. Which is why I'm saying that ASX can hold and get the $15. Sorry, just be clear, not insolvent, liquidated. I shouldn't have said insolvent. So, so uh, all you of be insolvent and still operate. You have to be liquidated. So all of those problems are solved if ASX basically becomes the hub for- Why does the ASX have to bear this pain? Why, why should they have to- Because they're the exchange. That's their job. You can charge more for brokerage if they have to pay all these services. You're going to be responsible for putting brokerage prices up. Dude, this, I'm allowing them to charge a dollar for <laughs> shares that are worth zero. But they've got to still do everything else. They've still got to, you know, hold the, they, they're officially the owners of the shares. Yeah, they've the, got responsibilities as, as, as the owners of a lot of shares of companies that have gone bankrupt. <laughs> That's just fine. SX, do it. Well, you could do it. Nah. You, you could offer to go into every unlisted company buy their shares off them for a dollar. There you go. New business idea for you. Hmm. Stand by, Phil's. Okay. Coming, coming soon. And Ivan Hunty's liquidation <laughs> purchasing company. All right. Um, and then Tindo says, P.S. I heard the president of the USA wants a share of the spoils if Microsoft buys TikTok. I think Scott deserves at least 1% fee on this deal as well if he convinces a celebrity like Doc to join TikTok. Hashtag full on. What do you reckon? What am I getting out of this? Like everybody's making money. You're going to be an influencer, mate. They make a fortune. Like everybody here is making money. I see the president is making money. I see you are making money. <laughs> I have no problem with that. Whatsoever. Like the only person who's not making money is I refuse. I demand F share too. Mate, as a TikTok influencer, you yeah. can make a school. You can be a millionaire. No, first I want. I when you want, buy whole cell dance. It's let's break the internet. That one. What I've heard is that if this is a thirty billion dollar <laughs> deal, I'll just take one percent of that. I'm getting 1%. You don't get 1% as well. Okay, fine. I'll even take 0.5. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 0.5% will do it. <laughs> All right. Mate, last question for today. A question from Andy. He says, hey, guys. Andy here. I've been listening to the podcast for the past few months and have just signed up for EO, Extreme Opportunities. I plan on using SMSF, though I've realized that Australian Super will only allow trades on companies in the ASX 300. I'm worried I miss out on the smaller companies recommended that might be the 10 baggers. 
Should I set up something else or accept what I can get through my SMSF? Love the podcast. Cheers, Andy. Couple of hashtags here. Hashtag stay strong, Doc. Hashtag Twitter is enough. Didn't James Bond say the world is not enough? How could Twitter be enough if the world is not enough? That's what I want to know. I, I love the support. Andy, why is the world not enough? I, it's a, I, a- Andy, you're a good man. <laughs> you're doing the right thing. Keep it up. Now, uh, yes. extreme opportunities. You are generally buying smaller companies. Yeah. They're almost exclusively outside the ASX 300, I would imagine. Are there any in the ASX 300? There might be. Like, here's what happens. Like, sometimes, like, I might have, you know, we might have recommended companies that are, well, we, we do have companies that are actually within the okay. ASX 300. Might even have some ASX 200 ones. But, Fair enough. Uh, but, but most aren't, right? Huh? But most aren't. But most aren't. And, but over time, they graduate. So, I mean... But you don't want, you don't want to wait until they've graduated, right? You want to get them when they're cheap. So, what yeah. should Andy do, mate? Should he give it a miss and join Share Advisor? Or should he say... I'm going to find another way to buy these stocks. Yeah, find another way to buy the stocks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew you'd say that. I don't want to lose one of my, uh, one of my, uh, you know, small number of subscribers to you. Um, but, uh, like, yeah, like, so I, I think there's some practical considerations here, right? I mean, I guess if you set up your own SMSF, you can do whatever, I guess. It all depends on what you, what the mandate of your SMSF is. Yeah. But again, the question really would be, is it worthwhile or not? That's again, you know, how much capital you have, how much is going to cost for auditing and things like that. That's really something that a financial advisor or your accountant yeah. is able to answer. Um yeah. Otherwise, I mean, the other place to buy is be outside of super, right? I mean, yeah, that's what I was um, say. you know, the simplest place would be outside of super. It's hard, right? Because I mean, you know, the, the, your Andy's employers obviously keep putting super contributions in, so that's the easiest money to get to. Uh, we talked about super a little bit on the last. Actually, we've got a special money hacks rant coming up, so stay tuned for that on Tuesday. A uh, bit of a bit of a uh, quick tease. You'll want to listen to that one. I get a little bit ranty. Um, yeah, look, money money goes into super automatically, right? So you're kind of using pool of money you don't have to try and save yourself it's harder to save money outside super often for most people just because you know a it's not um, automatic and b you kind of do see it first so it's tempting to spend but i agree i think i think andy i i gotta say i wouldn't if you're relatively young and or relatively small super i think saving up an smsf with very small amounts of money just to buy those stocks is probably not great i love doc's recommendations he's market beating you should buy them anyway but the cost and hassle of setting up an SMSF to access them is probably prohibitive. As you get older, assuming you're a young bloke, maybe you're not, but assuming you are, um, you may be able to justify an SMSF, a true SMSF and do it that way. I, I'd be, again, we can't give personal advice. I'd be loath to do it, mate. I know your stocks are great and I want people to buy them, but I think the cost and hassle, particularly with a low amount of capital, would probably eat up a decent portion of the gains compared to something else. So uh, by all means, buy the uh, stocks. Here's a challenge, Andy. Make yourself a see yourself a budget. Make give yourself a challenge to try and save some extra cash and use that to buy the EO stocks. I reckon that plus super. I mean, that, hey, by the way, that's even better, right? Because if you can if you can add more money outside super as well as buy great stocks, um, not only are you putting more money in, but you're getting better returns as well. That's a pretty good one-two punch. I reckon's a, a smart way to go. What do you say, mate? I agree. Now, I did say at the beginning that I would tell people how they could join Share Advisor. Now, just about EI, EO, mate. But I'm going to um. I'm going to, because I'm calling the shots here, I'm going to just change that if you don't mind. You don't mind, do you? No, I don't mind at all. I might have, I'll tell you, I'll give, stay tuned, extra tip at the end. Uh, 
Um, if you do want to join Motley Fool Share Advisor to get some of our starter stocks as well as some of our other advice, and we are currently beating the market. As I've said before, past performance is no guarantee, but it's pretty bloody cheap if you ask me. And you can join Share Advisor by going to a very special link only for podcast listeners. That is fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. We're looking for the best mid and large cap companies we can find, usually growth companies. Occasionally we go for a bit of deep value. We kind of fish anywhere the options are. We're coming up now, mate, on almost nine years of market beating performance. So I'm pretty pretty stoked about that. I'm not the only person who's done it. We've worked with a massive cast of people, including a good self on Share Advisor way back in the day. Um, plenty of other people have worked on it as well. So as a team, I'm really, really proud of the results we've been able to deliver for our members. I fully expect to keep doing that. As I said, again, past performance is no guarantee. But if you want to join Share Advisor, and I think you would, for less than a cop- cost of a cup of coffee a week, try saying that. Cost of a cup of coffee a week. It's not easy. A cost of one cup of coffee a week. So I'm saying it's not easy, is it? Yeah, it's not easy. Join us at <laughs> at least we'd have to keep saying that. Fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. And because I'm a nice bloke, I can't help myself. If, like Andy, you want to join Doc, there's another link which is very similar. It's fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. That's for EO for extreme opportunities. And you can join Doc and Kevin there or join Andrew and I at SA podcast. Fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast or or maybe and fool.com.au slash EO podcast if one is good two's got to be better mate I, I I was gonna say why I would never say uh, you know or let's just, just make it an and I reckon you could buy both of them for less than a cost of Sydney cup of coffee oh, Sydney coffee is very maybe, maybe not maybe not Wagga or Burke or Dubbo coffee because they're, they're, they're a little more discerning about how much they're prepared to pay but in Sydney CBD, mate, you could probably uh, you give it one cup of coffee, you could probably join both services, couldn't you? I don't know about Sydney CBD, but I live, my coffee is like, you know, six bucks or five six bucks. Six bucks? Five, well, I, what is in your coffee? I, I take Gold leaf? Like, I take almond mocha, <laughs> and, and it's a small one only. It's like cost six dollars. Five and a half bucks. Can you believe that? I, I, no, I'm, I'm genuinely... Coffee is very expensive. You should not do that. You should buy Share Advisor in AOX instead. Maybe that's what I should do. <laughs> if I cut down on one coffee, you I'll be saving a lot of money. Uh, don't tell Doc, but he, he gets it free as part of his employment contract. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that wraps us up. Do Doc a favor. Join his service because God knows someone's got to pay for those $5.50 coffees. So <laughs> help out, will you? Come on, he's got to keep employed and you know make some money out of this thing. Otherwise, I don't know how he's going to afford the coffee. All right, we're done. That wraps us up for this special Sunday Mailbag edition. Before we forget, uh, before we go, sorry, don't forget, you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or via the app from our good friends at Podcast One. And if you like what we're doing, and we think you should, please leave us a rating, send us a review, tell your friends, because more fools means more fun, and more fun means more money, and more money means we're all pretty happy. And plus, if you don't, we'll double the cost of the podcast. So there's a threat. <laughs> and of course, you can get a dose of foolishness free straight to your inbox and an offer to join Dividend Investor by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's special mailbag edition of Motley Fool Money. We're back on Tuesday with a Money Hacks rant. Stay tuned and fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.